Hello and welcome to Ian's Research Car, and other market podcast. I'm your host, Ian T. My guest today is art historian and curator, Roger Nelson. We've just had a tour of his exhibition, The Tailors and the Mannequins, Chen Cheng Mei and Yu Kin, and are here to discuss some afterthoughts. But first, let me give you an introduction to Roger's work. His research approaches modern and contemporary arts of Southeast Asia from interdisciplinary perspectives, with a focus on Cambodia and Laos as, point of, as points of intersection. In 2019, Roger joined the gallery as curator. Welcome to the club, Roger. Thanks, Ian. Let's start at the beginning of this show, and it opens with um, Yukin's painting titled The Tailors and the Mannequins, which you also titled the show after. Um, could you briefly ex- uh, introduce Yukin and how you got to know of his work? Mm, sure. It's such a fascinating painting that every time I look at it, I, I, I notice new details. Um, so Yukin is an artist who, um, until this exhibition, I think probably has been pretty much unknown here in Singapore and indeed pretty much unknown everywhere outside of Cambodia. Um, he's an artist who was born in Cambodia and, and studied there, but then continued his studies in France. Um, so he moved to France in 1973, um, which meant that he was there when uh, the Khmer Rouge took power in 1975 and thus escaped um, the genocide period in Cambodia. After he finished his studies in France, he he couldn't return home, obviously, due to those political events. Um, So he and his new wife um, moved to uh, Sudan, um, where he worked as an artist, held exhibitions, and also worked as an architect. Um, They lived in Sudan for a while, and then they moved to the Ivory Coast, Um, And after some years there, they moved to Doha in Qatar, where they stayed for almost 20 years. By the time Yukin finally moved back to Cambodia in the early 2000s, he'd been away for about 30 years or or half of his life. So a very unusual kind of life trajectory, really marked by his experiences in these very faraway places. And I think that that you see um, some of that in this painting, the the tailors and the mannequins, um, it's a it's a scene of um, two two figures who are working um, in their workshop. One is um, behind a sewing machine, and the other is wielding a, a large pair of scissors and, and trying to kind of grapple with uh, huge swathes of cloth. Um, and you get the sense that Yukin, um, in in composing this work, is outside their workshop, looking in on them. You get the sense that he. Um, is curious about these these two tailors, um, but that he's observing them from a distance as a certain kind of remove. He doesn't know them intimately. Perhaps he doesn't even speak to them. Um, in the painting, they're they're busy with their work, um, so they're looking down at the the fabric. They're not looking up at him, and so by extension, we don't get to see their faces. We don't get to uh, imagine um, what they're thinking or feeling or all their inner lives, and. That sense of, um, I suppose, curiosity um, with the unfamiliar people that Yukin met in these these various places he, he lived and worked in in Africa and the Middle East, um, which we see in in this painting, the tailors and the mannequins, um, really pervades most of his works from from the three decades um, he lived uh, in those places. Yeah, and in terms of the the research that go that went into the show. Um, the show is, of course, supplemented with quite a number of um, drawings, also kind of archival, personal images, photographs, as well as newspaper clippings. So like, for instance, one of 
the archival material shows um, the artists opening an exhibition in Doha. Mm. And I'm, I'm curious, how did you get your hands on these um, archival materials? And also, um, who were the people you spoke to to find out more about Yukin? Mm, thanks. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm glad you noticed those materials. They're, they're, they're some of my favorite things in the exhibition too. So what's really amazing about Yukin is not just that he lived in all of these very unexpected places, but that he actually held exhibitions in every city he, he lived in. So um, in, in the archival materials in the show, we, we have um, a checklist from an exhibition he held at the, the Hilton Hotel in Khartoum in Sudan, for example, um, or a newspaper clipping showing some um, Qatari government officials opening an exhibition he held at the offices of the petroleum company, um, for example. And all of these um, materials reflecting all of these exhibitions he had in, in these places were um, painstakingly collected by the artist and then after he passed away, um, were, were looked after by his family. Um, so for me, um, learning about Yukin really came um, through um, talking to, in particular, the artist's widow, uh, Yu Mui, um, and looking through these archival materials with her. So um, we were really fortunate that she was generous enough to donate the materials to us at, at National Gallery Singapore for the library and archive. Um, and she's also just been, she's, she has, she's one of these women who has an incredibly sharp memory. Um, she can remember not just everything that happened, but the details of everything that happened. So mm -hmm. if you ask her about um, that exhibition um, uh, at the, the, the Hilton Hotel in, in Khartoum, for example, she, she can recall the atmosphere of, of the opening, the kinds of people who turned up, um, the, the way that the artists felt when, when he found buyers for his works, um, all these sorts of things. Mm -hmm. Um, so all of the works in the exhibition are, are all recent acquisitions um, for Singapore's National Collection. And um, Mui, the, the artist's widow, was really um, uh, our main source of, of kind of information um, about, about these works, um, guiding us to understand how they fitted within, um, within his, his oeuvre um, and also um, you know, their, their history in terms of uh, exhibition histories and, and so on. You mentioned that um, you can return to Cambodia after 2000s. Was that how you first kind of got to know of the artist? Mm. He had um, one solo show just before he passed away um, at the French Cultural Centre um, in Phnom Penh, um, which I was lucky enough to see. And that show was um, very well received. And it was very, I guess, unexpected because um, he was a figure who um, you know had, had been away for Cambodia for so long that people didn't know about him mm. um, they were unaware of, of um, the role he played or the exhibitions he joined before he left for his studies in France and you know he just he'd been part of art worlds elsewhere in the world right not not in Cambodia and certainly not anywhere else in Southeast Asia so that was how I first um, knew of him and after he passed away, um, his widow uh, organised some other smaller showings of some of his earlier works, um, like the ones that are in, in the exhibition here, um, and sort of showed these alongside um, his more recent paintings. And it's quite a, I mean, you would have noticed in the show, there's quite a sort of a stylistic difference between the works he made in Africa and the Middle East compared to with the works he made after his return to, mm. to Cambodia. So I was quite struck by that. And um, I guess he... He just kind of, I was living and working in Cambodia at the time and doing research on Cambodian kind of modern artists. And I guess he always fascinated me because he doesn't really fit in with the story of Cambodian modern art because he wasn't in Cambodia. And so he was concerned with different, different things. Mm. Yeah. And in terms of like talking about that period, of course, something that you can't avoid would be the Khmer Rouge genocide that happened 
in the 1970s and there's one painting in particular where um, that speaks to what was happening in Cambodia at that point of time um, and you have quite an interesting interpretation of the imagery that's depicted mm. in the painting um, so the work that we're talking about in particular is the untitled work with uh, the descriptor that says the Chinese man eats the Cambodian soup from 1975 mm. maybe could you describe what we're looking at and of course um, what's your interpretation of the imagery yeah thanks for noticing that painting Ian um, the, the descriptive title uh, actually comes from the artist himself um, via his widow and um, the so what, let's start with the painting itself what, what we're looking at is uh, two figures um, one of them crouched crouching on the ground to um, to eat to eat something from from a bowl um, it's obviously something that he's enjoying eating because there's two empty bowls sitting on the ground behind him um, next to him is the figure who's um, we presume sold him um, these bowls of food for him to eat she is marked as Cambodian by her dark skin and by the red checkered scarf or chroma that she wears around her head. Um, in the context of, of the time in which this work was made, that might also mean that she was in fact a member of the, the communist association that we know of as the Khmer Rouge. He, on the other hand, is marked as being Chinese by his fair skin um, and by um, the way in which he, he crouches and, and, and uses chopsticks and, and so on. So. Um, what at first is a relatively straightforward scene of, of somebody selling somebody else food to eat um, takes on a kind of a darker and more allegorical um, meaning in this work um, with the title. So what, um, what the artist kind of intended um, for this work is for us to understand the Chinese figure as representing China at large or the Chinese government. Um, who, by devouring this, these bowls of, of, of babor tanaut, or um, a soup made of uh, the toddy palm fruit, um, are, are by extension or, or, or metaphorically devouring the nation of Cambodia, um, which is represented by, by the, 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 the hawker, the woman serving the food to him. Um, there is, um, yeah, there are, there are some other aspects of the painting that, that interest me. It's, it's obviously done very, very quickly. Um, we can see that the the paints, have, the colours have been sort of mixed um, on the canvas. Mm -hmm. um, the the paint is sort of crackling and 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 um, not in particularly good condition, which I think reflects the fact that it was painted quickly over the top of an already existing canvas. So our conservators were able to uncover the outlines of an earlier painting underneath, um, sort of suggesting that he did this in haste. And I guess the most significant detail in the whole painting, um, which may not be the first thing you noticed is at the top left of the of the canvas um, under the artist's signature the date 17475 which was which is a date that's kind of inscribed in the memories of all Cambodians as being the date that Pol Pot's Khmer Rouge troops took power um, and began the process of evacuating um, the um, million plus residents of, of Phnom Penh city the artist was in France at the time as I've, as I've said um, and he read about these events in the newspaper and had a sense of their kind of incredible grave historical importance um, and thus kind of rushed to make this work to document um, I guess to document that historical event and his his understanding of it um, his understanding of, of China as being behind the successes of the Khmer, Khmer Rouge and um, kind of the, the Khmer Rouge's 
taking power as being um, as leading ultimately to the kind of devouring of of, of the nation i suppose yeah so it's quite a um it's it's a small painting um and stylistically different from the others in the show and yet um quite a kind of invaluable historical document i think um it's the only work i know of by a cambodian artist that deals with the events of that day uh, made at the time um and it's also really um one of the hinges that ties the two artists in the show together because of its kind of compositional um, similarity to a work made um, just a couple of years later um, by the other artist in the exhibition, um, Chen Cheng Mei from Singapore. Yeah. yeah. And in the exhibition uh, essay, you wrote that um, Yu Kin's extensive archive was perhaps the only such documentation of the continuous professional practice of any Cambodian visual artist of his generation. Um, yeah. I mean, it's it's hard to kind of overstate just how much the genocide um, affected the arts in Cambodia. Um, Yukin's kind of classmates and teachers, um, almost all of them were killed. Um, an estimate that was made in the early 1980s during the sort of first process of, of kind of cultural rebuilding um, by a choreographer known as named uh, Cheng Pon. Um, he estimated that between 80 and 90 percent of all Cambodian artists had been killed in the genocide. Um, most of Yukin's family was killed, um, and of course, um, he only escaped um, by virtue of, of being out of the country at the time. So all of the artists who um, would have been, you know, the most famous, most kind of celebrated figures in the country when Yukin was a student before he left for France, people like Nyep Dem, whose paintings we have on show elsewhere in, in the, um, the UAB Southeast Asia Gallery here, um, were killed during the genocide. So it's kind of hard to overstate just how much devastation there was. So of course we do have um, paintings from that period by people like Neptune, but um, their production ceased entirely the day that the Khmer Rouge took power. And of course there are other artists of the Kim's generation who were also abroad at the time and thus escaped the genocide by virtue of being outside the country. Um, but what they don't have, which you can, did have, is a kind of um, continuous practice that began from before leaving the country. So he joined mm -hmm. exhibitions in, in Phnom Penh in the, in the late 60s and early 70s, and we have like newspaper clippings that kind of record his involvement at that time. Yeah, so a very, very singular figure within Cambodia's art history, which is in turn a very, very singular art history within the regions, I suppose you could say. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned the painting by Chen Ching Mei that it hangs um, next mm. to. So perhaps let's talk a little bit more about her work. Um, yeah. The show is divided quite neatly into two different sections, giving Yu Kin and Chen their kind of respective spaces, I suppose. That's one way to describe it. And But beyond their kind of itinerant lifestyle, um, there's almost nothing in common between the two artists. They have not met each other. They do not circulate within similar circles and even the circumstances behind their travels are very different mm, so yeah. what made you decide to adopt a comparative approach with this show by pairing these two artists together actually um this this two paintings that we were talking about earlier the yukin painting of the the chinese man eating the cambodian soup and the painting that so so kind of resembles compositionally at least by Chen Cheng Mei, which is called Eating Rice and from 1977. That um, purely coincidental, coincidental kind of um, compositional similarity was, was one of the reasons um, why um, 
this show came to be the way it is. Um, these two paintings look so similar in the sense that they both depict a figure, you know, kneeling down, um, eating eating from a bowl of rice, eating from a, from a rice bowl. Um, both figures um, have their arms raised, mm -hmm. creating this kind of diagonal line um, that cuts across the, the canvas, um, cutting against the vertical lines of the architectural features behind them, which are also kind of emphasised in both paintings. Um, the paintings are made just two years apart. Um, so, so much about them looks the similar um, and, and the subject matter is similar, and yet the kind of context in which they're made or the kind of allegorical um, meanings behind Yu Qin's work is so incredibly different from mm -hmm. Chen Cheng Mei's. Um, Chen Cheng Mei's painting is of a, an ama in Singapore's Chinatown, um, and it's a simple moment of, of kind of daily life. Maybe we can read into it a certain kind of um, empathic curiosity about the lives of, um, of uh, less visible um, parts of the working population. Maybe we can read into it her sort of um, curiosity about migrant labor as well, uh, which was a recurring interest of hers. Um, but beyond this, it's it's a scene of, of, of normal, day, happy daily life in a prosperous, peaceful Singapore. Um, Singapore in the 1970s, you know, becoming the global city that we, we know today. Whereas precisely at that time, of course, Cambodia was going through the kind of greatest devastation that any country in the region has, has experienced um, at that time. So the the incredible difference in the kind of trajectories of the national history and, and of the, the two artists' kind of biographies is kind of perhaps emphasised um, by um, the sort of surprising similarities yeah. in those two paintings, I guess you could say. Mm -hmm. um, they both, uh, what, what, I guess, what bring, what, what, what merits comparison, I think, in these two artists' works is that both of them um, drew so much inspiration from the experience of looking at unfamiliar people in unfamiliar places. So while Kin, while you can lived in Africa and the Middle East, Chen Chen Mei travelled as a tourist um, in search of kind of artistic inspiration um, through Southeast Asia, then South Asia, then Africa, um, then Latin America, and, and other parts of the world. Besides, she always came back home to Singapore and she made the paintings and prints we see in the exhibition here in Singapore at a, her comfortable studio. Um, so a very different kind of experience than, than, than Yu Kin. Um, her travels were um, made possible by a certain kind of, um, a certain kind of privilege and a certain kind of, I guess, um, artistic volition, if you like, whereas his life was very much kind of um, decided for him by the circumstances in which he lived, I suppose. Um, but those two, those differences are maybe interesting as well, um, and maybe they reflect not just these two artists as individuals, but the ways in which they, I suppose, offer us a view into the different trajectories of, of the two nations mm -hmm. and, of, and of the sort of unevenness of, of Southeast Asian art history as well, if you like. Yeah. And for Chen, she's probably better known because of her involvement with the Ten Men Art Group mm. in Singapore. And I think there's, um, it's a group that, of course, within the context of Singapore art history has this kind of mythic status. Mm. Um, for audiences who are perhaps not so familiar with Singapore art history, could you talk a little bit about the significance of the Ten Men art group and mm. perhaps what you hope this more, um, this focus on Chen's work outside of the context of the artistic group, what, what you're trying to say with this presentation of her work. Mm, yeah. Sure. Yeah, so the Ten Men art group, um, uh, 
is a bit of a strange name for the group because it didn't always consist of 10 people and they were not all men. Okay. Um, but what they're known for is their travels around Southeast Asia during the 1960s. So they would travel together as a group um, to different parts of the region um, on sketching trips. So there are some really great photographs of, of um, this group of, of mostly men and some women in their dashing clothes, you know, holding big sketchbooks or, or, or old um, SLR cameras and so on. And then when they came back to Singapore, they um, often held exhibitions showing the works that kind of resulted from these travels. So I guess the significance of this um, in that period of the 1960s is um, really the way that they mark a kind of a regionalist turn in artistic practice. Um, so there are, there are interesting kind of um, examples um, of the ways in which that was articulated at the time. So for example, um, one of the exhibition catalogues included a forward or, or some kind of a short text by S. Rajaratnam, who talked about um, this kind of artistic practice as um, bringing about kind of good neighborly relationships between the different um, countries in Southeast Asia. And I suppose t as a whole, um, the, the activities and, and the resulting artworks by the Tenmen group artists kind of reflect, uh, I suppose, an increasing awareness of and curiosity about our neighbors in the region. Um, that's the Tenmen art group. And as you say, they do have this kind of mythic status, although interestingly enough, and perhaps like all myths, there's some, there's some gaps in the way that that narrative is told. So for example, Yachi Wei is often sort of held up as being um, the leading figure within the Tenmen art group. Um, whereas in fact, it was Chen Cheng Mei who initiated um, the idea um, of the group and organized its first travels. And it was she who decided to hand over the leadership of the group to Yachi Wei um, because she didn't want to be in that position herself. So, as you say, Chen Chengmei is, is really known for her works done during the 1960s with the Tenmen Art Group. And so I really wanted to um, introduce audiences here in Singapore, um, in particular, to um, her incredibly prolific of from after that Tenmen period. She traveled just as, and in fact, more prolifically after the Tenmen Art Group kind of wound down its activities around 1970. This also coincided with, with the time when she resigned from her job as a translator at a bank here in Singapore and became a full-time artist. Her travels um, in the 1960s um, with the Temen Art Group were all in Southeast Asia, whereas from the 1970s onwards, she traveled more, for, more, more, more far further afield in other, other parts of the world. And so in the exhibition, I do include one painting from the early 1960s made during her Temen period. Um, but other than that, um, I really wanted to um, introduce audiences to this whole other side of her practice, which is less, less well-known and, and, and so on. And I think these works from after the Temen group period are really when Chen kind of um, reaches artistic maturity in the sense of really um, developing the sort of, um, I suppose, deliberately sort of naive looking um, aesthetic that many of her paintings as well as prints have, um, developing her interest in printmaking, which is something that she, she first started doing at the end of the 1960s, um, and um, really kind of pursuing uh, travels, particularly through parts of the global south as being the main inspiration for her works. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you mentioned um, the prints that are in the show and at the corner of the gallery, you display like a cluster of these prints, yeah. both etchings as well as um, more layered and complex compositions that are mm. done. And I think, um, could you talk about the select selection of prints sure. that you have made as well as the printmaker or the technician whom she worked with to create them? Sure, yeah. So actually printmaking is um, 
was a really important part of her practice. Um, and from the end of the 1960s onwards, she was kind of perhaps equally prolific as a printmaker as she was as a painter. And she sort of saw these two modes of practice as related. So in one of the only um, published texts of Chen's writing, she talks about printmaking um, enabling a certain kind of compositional play with layers of transparent colors, which I think is something that we see throughout her paintings over several decades as well. So I think there's definitely, she's working out similar kind of formal questions mm -hmm. in the prints as she does in the, in the paintings. And the techniques she uses in her prints are also, um, you know, I suppose also useful to sort of see that the, the so-called naive style of, of her work is very much an affectation rather than a reflection of, of, of a lack of skill or talent. Um, so the, the prints um, are made with quite a complex technique where there's layers of colors that are applied to a single plate. Um, she used both hard rollers and soft rollers in the application of these colors. So even though the prints are additioned, each each pressing, um, each each addition would be in a way unique or different mm -hmm. from the others. Um, she first began printmaking at the end of the 1960s when she studied in Paris um, under a printmaker called um, Hayter, William Hayter, um, and a place called Atelier 17, which is an interesting and an interesting kind of locus or meeting point for artists from different parts of Southeast Asia and indeed um, the rest of the world. There's been some recent books about Atelier 17 as being a place where artists who were women from different parts of the world were able to develop a sort of their own um, modernist kind of language. And I think there's a lot more work that can be done on um, artists from other parts of Southeast Asia who, who've also had a connection with Atelier 17. And so after her studies there, she um, kind of followed the approach taken by um, William Hayter. And she actually imported a printing press from the UK to Singapore, um, which she um, installed at, at La Salle um, back when it was at, at Goodman. Um, and, um, you know, it made it available for, for use by um, students and staff of La Salle. And so this was sort of the first, um, you know, professional quality printing press in Singapore, and, and became a, a hive of activity that a lot of artists remember um, remember working at. And she kind of ran um, informal classes um, at this printing press with two other artists, um, Ching Seok Tin, mm -hmm. as well as Ho Imoi. So Ching Seok Tin um, also um, published a, a text writing about um, Chen's printmaking and talking about her, her kind of felicity with colours. Um, while Ho Imoi is perhaps um, less well known for her own practice as an artist. Um, she's perhaps um, better known to some here in Singapore um, for her, um, her relationship to the artist Tan Tio Kwang, who is her husband and who was the brother of Chen Cheng Mei. They um, worked together, I think, in, in, in you know, developing this kind of quite unusual and in a way experimental technique with the use of hard and soft rollers and, and also some unconventional pigments like um, there's some mention in, in Chen's text about using not just like printing inks but you know kind of organic materials and, and sort of strange things and I, I don't I don't see that in any of the prints that we have in the show but certainly the the impasto um, um, of quality in, in a lot of her oil paintings you can see is built up with not just oil paint but with latex and dirt, other kinds of foreign materials that she introduced into the into the process. Yeah. And um, Chen is also quite 
a prolific artist in the sense that she produced many, many works across different media, not just paintings and prints, but also drawings yep. and um, other works on paper. And from, and, don't forget, yeah. also from the 1950s, right up the way through till the 2010s. So it's an incredibly prolific practice, as you said, but also like spanning, what is that, seven decades. Yeah, and they vary quite quite starkly and yep. stylistically from, from one to another, yep. even though they could be made in the same period. Yeah, yeah. So you have pieces which almost completely abstract, and then you have another work which is a scene from like everyday life, which yep. are produced in the same period. Um, what what would you, what, why do you think she produced? Um, is it just like a, a spirit of experimentation that she had, or do you think she also um, produced such varied works with certain? intentions behind um, having this kind of wide breadth of exploration yeah it's a good question Ian and we, I think we've talked about this before and I, I guess I'm never really satisfied with my answer to this question I do think that there are certain sort of stylistic qualities that are quite consistent in her work really from the 50s or definitely from the 60s onwards so the kind of um, simplification, simplified compositions, particularly simplified um, depiction of figures, I think recurs throughout all the works, both printing, printing prints and paintings. Um, I think that her interest in composition that's really driven by color um, also recurs. Um, and this interest in, in sort of transparent and semi-transparent kind of planes of color that often sort of overlap and, 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 and so on. I think that recurs. Um, but yeah, I, I know what you're saying, that there's also like an incredibly kind of um, wide range of forms that this takes. I think in terms of subject matter, there is a pretty consistent interest in the everyday, both in the works she made um, inspired by her travels. So things like the market scene in Sri Lanka, which is part of the exhibition, um, or people doing their laundry, um, or the works that she made inspired by scenes here in Singapore. So the Amai eating rice we've already talked about um, or a couple of other works that are in the exhibition that show people um, you know, taking their dinner out to um, roadside um, stalls. So this kind of interest in the everyday pervades. But why does it always look so different? I guess maybe experimentation is the thing that she was an artist who really never stopped experimenting and you see that in the weird weird non, non-art materials that she introduced that I was mentioning just before that she's she had a very kind of um, cavalier, um, playful kind of approach of, you know, see how, just mm. kind of experimenting. And the fact that she didn't kind of have to make a living from her art and that she didn't, you know, regularly um, exhibit her art in, in any large quantities until very late in her life. You know, she didn't, doesn't have her first solo exhibition until she's already 70-something, right? Maybe that gave her a greater freedom that she didn't need to make works that um, she imagined the public were expecting, mm. perhaps. And um, the exhibition kind of is presented under this new project space that the National Gallery is having called um, Dalam Southeast Asia. Uh, could you briefly introduce this project space mm. and perhaps what are the questions or um, that the exhibition or this space hopes to bring up? Mm, sure. Yeah. So Dalam Southeast Asia is is located inside the UAB Southeast Asia Gallery, which of course is our long-term display of, of art from this region from the 19th century until today. 
And the word dalam um, from the Malay language, um, you know, kind of means inside or within. It's in a way of inviting people inside. Um, works from um, Singapore's national collection. So all of the projects here will um, feature primarily works from um, our national collection. And all of the projects presented here will um, explore lesser known figures um, within the art histories of this region. So figures who perhaps um, have been overlooked um, or underexplored elsewhere in the Southeast Asia galleries. Um, so in other words, a way of showing new research that the curators have been doing, as well as recent acquisitions or parts of the collection that, that haven't been on view before. But beyond that, beyond, I guess, providing access, if you like, um, or exploring lesser known figures, if you like, I think another thing that we're hoping to try and achieve with Dalam Southeast Asia is to think about the model of the project space itself. So in, um, in developing um, the articulation of the ideas for Dalam Southeast Asia, which, which are included in the catalogue for this exhibition, which you can, you can get um, on our website, um, my colleague Shabir Hussein Mustafa talks about um, the sort of superabundance of project spaces. You know, every modern museum worth its salt anywhere in the world, Southeast Asia and, and, and beyond, um, is introducing project spaces. And what does that, and it's, it's a very recent phenomenon, it's within the last you know, decade or so. And what does that sort of mean? Mm -hmm. And how can we at the same time participate in that kind of global trend, if you like, um, you know, using it as an opportunity to explore lesser known artists or to, to explore, provide access to parts of the collection, while also maybe critiquing the project space as being, um, you know, a, a model that perhaps um, reveals some of the, the gaps or shortcomings or failures even um, of museums more, more generally. You know, why is it that um, the narratives um, like the ones explored in this exhibition or in other projects in Dalam Southeast Asia haven't been more fully looked at elsewhere in the Southeast Asia gallery, you know? I think one of the questions that I really wanted to ask with this exhibition was, is it still Southeast Asian art when it doesn't depict Southeast Asia? You know, most of the artworks in this exhibition um, are people or places um, very far from Southeast Asia. Um, and so what what usefulness does that have for us in, in, in thinking about Southeast Asian art or Southeast Asian modern art as a category? Mm -hmm. um, that's a question that, you know, comes out of um, some of the research and thinking that I've been doing, but I think it, it also sort of very much relates to the, the larger narratives that are being set up elsewhere in the Southeast Asia gallery, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah, and in thinking about perhaps the affinities that artists or creative practitioners in the global south, right? Yeah. How um, for Yukin's context, the works are not even made in Southeast Asia. Yeah. Because yeah. he's living, whether it's in Africa or yeah. in the Middle East for decades before he moved back yeah. to Cambodia. Exactly. I guess this kind of, um, you use the word affinities and this, I guess this strategy of looking at affinities between this part of the world and other parts of the global south is something that contemporary artists and, and curators of contemporary art have been thinking about. So I was very much inspired by um, exhibitions like Journey Beyond the Arrow, which was the curator Zoe Butts um, component of the Sharjah Biennial in 2019, um, where she looked at the practices of artists from different parts of the global south whose work pointed to historical networks that mm -hmm. tied these different parts of the world together. Um, I was also inspired by um, the practices of individual artists 
um, like for example, Tuan Andrew Nguyen, um, who was part of Zoe Vap's exhibition, who presented a, a moving image work that conjoined the histories or, or oral histories rather um, of Vietnam with Senegal. Um, also inspired by um, my colleagues like the curators Kathleen Ditzig and Carlos Quijon Jr. who curated an exhibition called Afro-Southeast Asia um, here in Singapore last year, um, which looked at the ways in which the legacies of the Cold War um, and kind of non-aligned, um, the non-aligned movement um, that, that sort of saw um, nations within Africa and Southeast Asia in dialogue, mm. the ways in which the, I guess, the, the legacies or what would you say, like after effects of that yeah. continue to be worked through by contemporary artists today. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of this kind of um, interest in, in the contemporary art world today, um, trying to create, uh, I suppose, South to South dialogues within the global South that um, that rediscover, you know, um, the legacies of something like the non-aligned movement, but also that maybe provide a way out of kind of constantly turning to the West as a source of theoretical knowledge. Mm. And I suppose one of the things I wanted to do with this, ex- this exhibition and by looking at these two artists was to think about what, what were some of the art historical antecedents for that contemporary interest. Yeah. Um, were there artists um, you know in the in the 20th century whose practices and interests also pointed to um, certain kind of um, curiosities or affinities between this region and other regions in the global south mm-hmm. yeah and, and you also mentioned that um, the works by you Kim in the exhibition are all recent acquisitions mm-hmm. um, at the gallery and I'm also curious if there are new additions to the UOB Southeast Asian gallery um, permanent exhibition if there are any new additions and recent acquisitions which you are particularly excited about or mm. you would like to highlight sure thanks Ian um, as I, I think I might have said to you on another occasion I think another one of our um, hopes with Dalam Southeast Asia was that it would bring people back to the gallery um, and in particular bring people back to the UOB Southeast Asia gallery because even though it's a long-term display, every year as much as 100 works get changed. So there's always something new to see. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe we haven't done a very good job of getting word out about that fact. So some of the things that um, we've recently put on display that, that um, I think are exciting and maybe have some connection to this exhibition include um, two paintings made in the 1910s by um, the artist Georges Grolier, who was the um, Cambodian-born French artist, scholar, founder of the um, School of Cambodian Arts in Phnom Penh, which was the school where Yukin studied. Mm. So his, his artworks are very rare. Um, these paintings were originally made for the Royal Palace in Phnom Penh, but have been kind of rolled and folded up in storage for decades. Um, so this is an artist who really shaped the kind of educational system in which Yukin studied and, and, um, and so on. Um, also, from Cambodia, there's a work, a painting by Nyuk Tim, um, who I mentioned before, who was the kind of best known Cambodian artist of the, the 1960s and early 70s. Um, certainly would have been, you know, kind of one of Yukin's heroes before he left for France. Um, and a painting of his that we have on display called Village Scene from, um, I think it's 1960 or 1961, which has an incredible history that before it came to our collection, it was um, it was actually found by, um, um, 
somebody after they bought a, a mobile home, like a, what do you call it, a trailer home? What mm-hmm. do you call that? Um, somewhere in, in the middle of nowhere in America. So they bought a used secondhand um, trailer home and they were clearing out the junk from this trailer home and they were going through one of the cupboards and they discovered in the back of the cupboard some old paintings and one of them was this painting by Yukim, uh, by, by Neptune. So quite an incredible kind of story. So it's great to have that on show as well. Um, and then another work which um, I think might have caught your eye, Ian, was um, the painting called something like Ship, I think, mm-hmm. um, by the artist Lai Fung Mui, who was uh, Chen Chimei's, um, um contemporary um, and who also joined on some of the Ten Men art group um, trips in the 1960s as well. Yeah, the, the painting by, Loy, uh, by Lai is um, titled Ship from 1960, and it's a relatively early work. Mm. Um, by the artist and something that we were discussing earlier also was that she um, is a claim to be one of the first graduates from Malaya who um, got the chance to study in Paris yeah so uh, she returned from her studies in Paris in I think 1959 and um, my colleague and friend um, the art historian Yvonne Lowe um, has traced through some of the kind of media coverage that um, that came when she she returned from Paris and she was celebrated as being um, the first kind of Malayan born um, artist to to be offered this particular study um, scholarship or study opportunity in in, in Paris mm-hmm. and I guess yeah not not so unlike Chen Cheng Mei she had a pretty heterogeneous range of styles after her return ranging from um, kind of Georgette Chen style post-impressionist kind of scenes um, to in this work Ship from 1960 a much more stylized almost semi-abstract um, kind mm. of um, quite graphic yeah. very flat um, yeah, flat exactly. planes of colors yeah exactly um, in terms of projects that you're working on uh, or future kind of trajectories of research is there are there any questions in particular that you're thinking about more these days um i guess for me this this exhibition even though it's a, a small exhibition it's just it's really just one room 20 something artworks um has really come out of quite a long period for me of of looking into these two artists in particular and these questions of kind of south to south identities more generally so i would like to continue doing more research in this vein um which means not only looking at um more artists like these whose practices tie them to other parts of the world, um, but also continuing to look at some of the, um, I guess, theoretical models for some of the thinking here. Um, I don't know if it's fair to say this or not, but I often get the feeling that um, discussions of Southeast Asian art always always either make reference to art historical or theoretical kind of models from here in Southeast Asia or else from the West. And I wanted to think about how thinkers from other parts of the global South might also be of utility here. And so looking into the particular periods when Yukin and Chen Chimei were, were living or traveling through um, Africa and, 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 and the Middle East, I found that there were certain ideas that were um, had currency at that time that were very similar to the ideas here. You know, just just as S. Rajaratnam is writing about the Temen art group um, facilitating better neighbourly ties amongst Southeast Asian countries, 
So too, um, people behind things like the Pan-Asian Cultural Festival um, in, in Algeria in the end of the 1960s talked about the arts and culture as a means for um, neighbouring neighboring countries, neighboring cultures to, um, to kind of bridge, bridge the, the differences between them and, and, and engage in a certain kind of dialogue, if you like. And just as um, Chen Mei and Yukin both made statements um, along the lines of their kind of planetary consciousness, their sense of them, themselves as being really citizens of the world. Um, one of my favorite quotes from Yukin is where he talks about my world being modern. So too, um, artists of their generation in the Middle East were, were making, writing manifestos about the need for a, a new vision of the world. Um, so there were certain ideas that, that you know, really had currency um, um, at the same time in, in different places. And that was also a coincidence. That I don't think there was an active exchange between artists in this part of the world and artists elsewhere. I think it's just something about the, the zeitgeist or the kind of spirit, the ideas of the times that, that, that really um, drove that. So I think, um, you know, I have a lot more to learn um, about these historical moments, but also about the sort of theoretical thinking of, 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 of writers like um, Achille and Bembe and, and, and Edouard Blisson, both of whom I sort of learned a lot from for thinking about this show. And I guess that's something that I hope to be able to spend more time on in the future. And we certainly look forward to what you're working on as well. Um, next. Thank you so much, Roger. Thank you, Ian. Thank you for listening to Ian's Research Club, an Art and Market podcast. If you liked what you heard, subscribe to stay updated when new episodes drop. You can find the podcast by searching Ian's Research Club on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Do rate and review us as it helps others discover the show. For images of the artworks and exhibitions discussed, visit the ANM website. Our URL is www.artandmarket.net. Follow AM on Instagram and Facebook for more specialist content on Southeast Asian art. Till next time, bye!